as I said uh, in the prayer, we're going to be looking at Psalm 63 today. Uh, we're going to hold off on reading that for now, but um, I want to ask you guys a question. If in eternity you had every wish and dream of your heart except God, would you be satisfied with that? Now, you've probably heard this question or a variation of this question before, and so you might kind of think that it's a bit cliche, but I want you to seriously consider it for a moment. If you had a perfect, intimate marriage, if you had children who honored and obeyed you at all times, if you had the adoration and respect of your family, friends, coworkers, everyone just loved you, um, if at work you knew that your work had an obvious and positive impact on the world, um, if you had all the money you needed to buy anything that you wanted, if you had the body that you've always dreamed to have, if you didn't need to fear ever failing at anything or getting sick or even dying, if you didn't have to fear any of that, but God was not present, he was not there with you, would you be satisfied with that? Now this question is huge because it gets to the heart of Christianity if you really reflect on it. Christianity is not a religion where we love God so that he gives us better lives and better things. It's easy to treat it that way, and it's easy to act like that's what Christianity is, but that's not the point of our faith. Our religion is first and foremost about the person Jesus Christ and what he did to restore an alienated and rebellious people back into a right relationship with God the Father. To put it more simply, Christianity is about Jesus and how he has reunited us with God. There are profound implications to that. It is not about getting a better life. It is about getting God. That is the goal of the Christian life. That is what we're ultimately seeking as Christians. We seek God. He is the true treasure that Christians yearn for, not his gifts and blessings even though those things are great and amazing and we do appreciate those things nonetheless. Our supreme treasure is him. But sadly, so many people go through life claiming to be Christians, but they rarely, if ever, truly experience and encounter God. And it's because they don't get this fundamental idea. They don't get that Christianity is about receiving him. They think it's about knowing the right doctrines, living the right way, because they think, if I do that, if I think the right thoughts, if I do the right things, God will bless me because of what I'm doing. But that's totally missing the point. And for those who live that way, their spiritual lives are in decay. They are not growing. Think about it this way. Parents, or those of you who don't have kids, you can imagine this as well, how would you feel if your children were always asking you questions so that they knew exactly how to think and behave properly? And then what if they actually did all those things? Wouldn't you love that? All parents would love perfectly obedient children. That, that would be a dream child. But let's take it a step further. What if they were only doing it so that you would buy them things? 
And what if when you gave them those things, they kind of just quickly thanked you and then ran off and played with that thing or used that thing, um, but they never spent any time with you? What if your children only sought you out when they wanted something, but otherwise they just avoided you? You were, you were nothing in their life apart from just someone who could give them or provide them things. Wouldn't that hurt you? Wouldn't that upset you? The greatest gift that you know you can give them is your love and support and your affection as their parent. But that's the last thing they want from you. The best thing you can give them is your relationship with them. But that's the furthest thing from their mind. They are utterly missing out on the most precious aspect of being a child. And the same is true in our relationship with God. When we call ourselves Christians, but only go to God in pursuit of something from him rather than getting him personally, we are missing the point. If we live that way, we will never truly encounter him because we won't be setting our eyes towards him. Our faith will eventually become cold and hard. In fact, I would say that if you've never experienced enjoyment in God himself, then you have never truly actually trusted, entrusted your life to him in the first place. Your heart is dead. Those whose hearts have been awakened to God will enjoy him. It is a necessary fruit of a heart brought to life in Jesus Christ. And hopefully, Caleb and I have been communicating this as we've been preaching through the Psalms. We did a lot of them in August and September. We've been doing them sporadically since then. But hopefully, we've been communicating this general idea. It's a recurring message found throughout the Bible, but it's especially seen in the Psalms. Consider just a few verses. I just went, looked at some of the Psalms that we've already preached on. And here's just a couple verses that I came across just from the, the Psalms that we've already preached. This isn't even considering all the rest of the Psalms. So Psalm 16, verses one and two. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Psalm 42, verse one, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. Psalm 62, verse one, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. Psalm 73, verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. And then finally, Psalm 130, verses five and six. I wait for the Lord. Oh, my soul waits. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. Jonathan Edwards sums up what I'm trying to communicate. He, he does it really well, as Edwards does about pretty much everything. He preached this, about this very subject in a sermon titled The Christian Pilgrim. And he, he says this, God is the highest good of the reasonable creature and the enjoyment of him is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, children, or the company of all earthly friends are but shadows. 
but the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, as in light beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. So I return to my original question. If you could have everything you ever wanted except God, would you be happy with that? I want to be clear. Know that if your answer is yes, I would be satisfied, I would be happy with that, then you don't understand Christianity. You do not understand God or why Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. If that is you, I want you above all people to be listening to this sermon this morning. If that's not you, then you still need to listen. Because even those of us who answer, no, I would not be satisfied, I want God, hopefully we acknowledge how easily we are tempted to say yes. It's not an easy question to answer if we're honest with ourselves. We're all tempered, tempted to treasure the things of earth or even the good things that God gives us over treasuring him. It is so easy to settle for something less than him. And that brings us, finally, to why I am preaching on Psalm 63 this morning. My goal for this sermon is to help you develop a deeper appetite for God. Sin ruins our appetites for him. My aim is to help you restore your appetite a bit. Um, Or maybe you realize that you've never actually had an appetite for God in the first place. Either way, Psalm 63 is one of, in my opinion, one of the best places we can go in scripture for this. I want you to hunger for God. That is my prayer for every one of you this morning. That's been what I've been praying through all week is that you would hunger for God more deeply this morning and every day after this. Only he can change your heart so that you would hunger for him. And I pray that he does that this morning. And Psalm 63 is so helpful in light of that because it's a fascinating glimpse at David's own experiences and hunger for God. He is a man with a vast appetite for God because he has encountered and experienced God in many ways. And this psalm powerfully portrays that. So I would sum up his main idea for the psalm in this psalm this way. Seek God and be satisfied because his love is better than life. So let me say that again. If this psalm communicates one thing, it's this. Seek God and be satisfied because his love is better than life. In terms of approach, we're going to... We're going to work through the psalm by looking at how God was David's desire, his delight, and his defense. So those will be the three points that we look at this morning. So keep that in mind as we now look at the psalm together. If you haven't already turned there, it's in the Pew Bibles. It's on page 479, so you can turn there now. Uh, But follow along with me as I read Psalm 63. God's word says this, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. 
My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate you on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God, and all who swear by him shall exalt. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. So now I want us to start by first having a look at the title of this psalm, actually. If you look there in your Bibles, it says, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. So we learn two facts from this right off the bat. First, David, the well-known king of Israel, is the author of this psalm, which isn't all that surprising because he wrote many of the psalms that we have. Um, The second fact we learn is that he wrote this when he was in the wilderness of Judah. That fact is particularly interesting uh, because we know that David spent extended time in the wilderness twice during his life. The first time, as many of you probably know, is when he was fleeing from Saul, the previous king of, of Israel. Uh, Saul was seeking to kill him, and so David had to flee from him into the wilderness of Judah. Uh, David wrote many of his psalms during that time. And honestly, when I first looked at this, and pretty much all of the times that I've read Psalm 63 before, I just assumed that David wrote this psalm when he was in the wilderness during that period of time. But there was a second time when David was in the wilderness. It was when he was fleeing from Absalom, his son, because he was try- his son was trying to kill David. He was trying to take the throne from him. And so again, David had to flee to the wilderness to escape him. And it was actually during this second flight into the wilderness that we can see and infer from the passage that is actually when this psalm was written. Look with me at verse 11, the final verse of this. He says, but the king shall rejoice in God. Here, David is talking in third person. He's talking about himself here. And he's referring to himself as the king. So we know that this psalm was written when David was already the king of Israel. Though David knew he was going to be the king, even when Saul was chasing him, he never considered himself to be the king until after Saul died. In fact, if you recall from 2 Samuel 1, we know that Saul actually, um, just some background history on the passage, Saul was in battle and he died because he actually commanded a man uh, to kill him because he knew that he was going to die on the battlefield. Um, And that man who, quote unquote, put Saul out of his misery, brought the news to David. And David actually had that man killed because, as he said, the man had killed Saul, the Lord's anointed, as David put it in his own words. He very much still saw Saul as the king of Israel, even though He was to be that king. Um, And so all that to say, David would never have called himself king before he actually ascended the throne. So we know that this psalm was written during the rebellion of Absalom, since that's the one time David had to flee to the wilderness during his reign as king. 
So why is this important? I'm taking the time to point this out because the context makes the psalm so much sweeter, so much more powerful. It was unbelievable for me to reflect on this this week, um, to go back and to read through 2 Samuel um, like verses or chapters like 15 through 18, where it's recounting the rebellion of Absalom and to reflect on everything that took place and then to see that David wrote this amidst that time. I'd encourage you guys uh, later today to go back and read through that passage. It makes it so powerful because the reality is David was experiencing unbelievable stress unbelievable distress during this season of his life. If you don't remember the story of Absalom, Absalom was David's son who decided he wanted to take the throne from his father, as I've already said. He spent years plotting his uprising, and when he had put it into action, nearly the entire nation supported him. Not David, the king that they loved, the king that they had wanted. They rejected him and turned to follow his son. Um, And the boy was seeking his father's very life. And this was a son that David dearly, dearly loved and a nation that that the king adored. But even in light of that, in seemingly no time at all, they all turned against David and he was left with only a small contingent of supporters and followers at this point. On top of that, David has already spent some time wandering in the dry, arid wilderness of Judah where there's very little water, there's very little food, and very little shelter from the unforgiving son. And so David is emotionally, physically, and spiritually devastated at this point. Everything, and I mean everything, that he had appears to be stripped from him at this point. And yet look at his response to it. This is where we see the depths of his appetite for God. Look with me again at verse one. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. It's in a dry and weary land where there is no water. This response blows me away. It honestly does. I, I yearn to have a heart that yearns for God this much. David is weary, weak, and fainting. And that's literally, he's weary, weak, and fainting. He is using an analogy that is based upon his very real and very bad circumstances. But in his starving, thirsty, exhausted state, what is his greatest desire? It isn't food. It isn't water. It's not rest or shelter or comfort or anything like that. It's God. His greatest desire is not to have his kingdom back or to have the love of his son again. It's God. He wants God above all else. He is David's greatest desire. Friends, that is the appetite we want for God. His soul thirsts for him. His flesh faints for him. In other words, David's entire being, both body and soul, long for God. He wants to experience God's presence. He yearns for it. He craves it like nothing else. He wants to be near him. He's earnestly seeking him with all of his energy, with all of his might. That is the response we want to have in our own seasons of wilderness. And if you think about it, that highlights why the wilderness in our own lives is so important. Let me ask you, what is your wilderness? Maybe you aren't there now, but I know you've been there before. 
What have you lost? What has been taken from you? What has caused you suffering and pain and hardship? God has allowed you to face that wilderness for a reason. I can't tell you that I know the specific reason that you had to face it. I wish I could, but I can't. That's part of the mystery of God's will, and who are we to demand an answer from him? But I do know this, and I, and I can encourage you with this. Part of the reason he oftentimes allows us to wander in the wilderness is so that we might be shown what we truly desire. In the wilderness, your true heart is revealed. In the wilderness, your longings are exposed. In the wilderness, your appetite for God is tested. But in the wilderness, your appetite for God is also refined and it's deepened. It is in the wilderness where God prunes our hearts and he reminds us of why and what we should truly treasure and desire. If, you've ne- if we've never struggled with s- such pruning, it will never happen. That pruning, that refinement won't take place. That is the place where God changes us in the wilderness. And what would our lives look like if we didn't have that? Just think about it for a moment. If you never struggled, if you never suffered, if you were never tested, the temptations and idols of our hearts would run rampant. They would be twisting and corrupting our souls. We would look more like Satan than like Christ. That's a horrible fate. We should never desire that. The wilderness is devastatingly hard at times. But in walking through our desires, but walking through it, our desires are purified and, God's, and God brings us closer and closer to him. He is brought closer and closer to the center of our affections. And that is a perfect and glorious thing. The way that I look at the psalm is, in this psalm, we see David's worship taking on two forms. We see fainting and feasting. This stanza, and especially this first verse, is showing us how worship is expressed through the fainting. And by fainting, I don't necessarily, I don't mean literally, he like, falls over, fainting, he's unconscious. I mean this intense longing for God that David is experiencing. Think about it. Fainting is the proper expression of our love should take when the thing that we love is gone or seems gone. We should yearn for it. We should crave it. We should long for it. By fainting for God in God's apparent absence, David is worshiping him. Keep that in mind when you are facing your own wilderness. It is easy to sink even further into darkness when we believe that our fainting and thirsting after God is just a sign of weakness or maybe even sin. It is far from that though. Fainting, fainting for God is an act of faith. Those who do not know him do not faint for him. Those who, only those who desire him, only those who, Only those who have drawn near to him seek after him in the wilderness. Everyone else will curse his name. They run from him, not to him. So take courage when you are fainting for God. That is evidence that he has touched your heart and that he is increasingly becoming the supreme desire of your heart. But now look with me at verse two. He says, so I looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. 
David's desire for God is built upon a foundation of previous experiences with God. Though God appears far off now, David remembers when he encountered God and he remembers how marvelous and incredible his power and glory were. When God, has brought, when God was brought into clarity and view for David, all other things were shown to be tiny and insignificant compared to God. If someone has never seen a mountain, they might be, probably not, but they might be impressed with the so-called hills we have here in Illinois. Um, Like I said, they still probably aren't going to be impressed, but just bear with me. But all of that would change if they saw a real mountain. Um, I remember the first time I saw a mountain. I... I was very untraveled for a long period of time. It wasn't, I, I think the first time I saw a mountain wasn't until after I graduated from college, actually. And I can definitely resonate with this. Once you've seen one, something of true greatness and an immensity with its snow-capped peaks and how it reaches up beyond the clouds, um, at that point you truly understand how embarrassingly small our hills actually are. Um, And the same is true for David here when he's reflecting on God. He's encountered God, and after that, his perspective towards the world was utterly changed. It was permanently altered. Nothing compares to his God. And because of it, he desires him above all else. And his reason for desiring God goes even further than that. Look with me at verses three and four. He says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. David is moving beyond his memories of God and he's reminding himself what is true of his relationship with God despite how he is currently feeling. David is seeking to shift from fainting for God to feasting on God, as I kind of mentioned before. That should be, practically, that should be a practical encouragement for us. Um, it is right to faint for God and to desire him when we are in the wilderness, but we don't want to simply resign ourselves to that, um, to that hunger and not to attempt to be satisfied in God. Let's earnestly seek after him in the wilderness and imitate David in this passage. Let's turn our fainting into feasting by preaching truth to ourselves and by listening to that truth um, that maybe we are preaching to ourselves or maybe others are preaching to us as David is doing. But let's consider how he's doing that. As I said, he's reminding himself what is true of his relationship with God. He's reminding himself of the love that God has for him. And this is profound because David's current suffering is not unwarranted. We might think that this is just suffering that God is using to to, um, grow him in endurance and to refine him. But God actually has given David the reason for this suffering. Think back to 2 Samuel for those of you who have read it. In that book, we learn that David was once an adulterer and a murderer. He slept with another man's wife, and then he had the man murdered so that he could marry his wife, who he got pregnant. In response to that, the prophet Nathan knew that David had done this, and he rebuked him for it. 
I'm going to read to you guys what Nathan said to David in 2 Samuel 12, verses 7 through 12. If you want, you can turn there really quickly, but you don't have to. Um, So Nathan says this as a rebuke to David. Uh, Verses 7 through 12, he says, Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take you and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. Do you see what, what is taking place here? This is exactly, Absalom's rebellion is exactly what Nathan said would happen. David's current suffering is a direct and promised punishment from God for his sins. He isn't just suffering for some unseen reason. This is directly due to sin in his life. The sword is very really in his house and it is coming against him. I'm sure Nathan's rebuke haunted David from the day it happened till the day David wrote this psalm and felt the sting of God's promised discipline. He hadn't forgotten. How could he? David knew why this was happening to him. I'm, I'm absolutely convinced of that. But doesn't that make his response to it all the more astounding? David, instead of running from God in shame, he runs to him. He casts himself upon the love and mercy of God. He depends upon him and his love. He knows his life is nothing without him. That is the heart of true repentance and genuine desire for God. The foundation of David's hope and desire is his relationship with God. How does he start this psalm again? Oh God, you are my God. He is not just anyone's God. He's David's God. There's an intent, intimate, intense, committed relationship here. David's hope is rooted in the covenant God made to his people to love them and to be their God. And David knows that this means him as well. David trusts that God's love for him has not wavered and will not waver, even though he has disciplined David. David assures himself of God's love for him. And because he has God's love, he knows he lacks absolutely nothing. That love is better than life itself. As a recipient of God's covenant promises, David knows that he will never lose more than he has gained by receiving God and his love. Even if all else was stripped away from him, if David still had God, then he still had everything he could ever need or want. We see the depths of David's desire for God and the values he places on God's love. 
It is incomparable. Being the object of God's love and affection is the greatest treasure one could possibly receive. Even if you possessed all that was precious and good and valuable in creation, all of it, everything, it would still not come close to comparing to to having God. It would be like capturing some some light rays from the sun, if we could capture them. It would be like capturing just a couple light rays from the sun compared to having the very sun itself. Everything that has value derives that value from him. Think about it. Everything that has value, everything that has worth was made by him and it derives its worth from him. Therefore, he is the sun that produces all light. So to have the love of God is to have all that is valuable and worthy. It is hard to even wrap our minds around. As I was reflecting on this, like even last night, I was trying to reflect on this and pray through this. And it's like, like it hurt my brain just to try to fathom what that means, what that looks like, but it's true. And David knows that his covenant relationship with God means that God's love for him is steadfast and unchanging, even in light of his sins. This encourages David in ways nothing else could. That's why we see him blessing God's name. That's why he's lifting his hands in praise. Now, we have to ask ourselves this. Do you run from or to God when you're ashamed of your sin? Satan and your flesh will tempt you to run from him. You will be tempted to believe that God's desire is now against you and not for you. Do not believe these lies though. We know that God's covenant promises are true for us if we are trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. We know that through faith, God's love for us is steadfast and that it really is better than life. Because Jesus died for our sins, God's desire is for us, not against us. Your sin, even when you face consequences for it in this life, does not void God's love for you. David knew that even as he faced terrible punishment for his sin, punishment promised by God himself, he still trusted that God's love was still for him. Let's imitate him. Let's seek God and fall upon his covenantal love for us. And that finishes our first point. I decided in a sense to kind of pull a chat um, this time and have a really long first point. Um, But the reason for that is that the rest flows out of the groundwork that we just laid um, and should go much quicker. We saw how God was David's and should be our supreme desire, but now we're gonna see how God was David's and, and ours supreme delight. So look with me at verse five. It says, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. As I mentioned earlier, worship can take two general forms, fainting and feasting on God. We saw David fainting in the first couple verses of Psalm 63, but now we're looking forward to the feasting that he is assured and confident will come again. This is the expression that our love takes when the object of our love is near and present. This is the, it is the actual delighting in the experience of that object of our affection and love. 
And just as I mentioned before, David is not resigning himself to fainting. He's lifting up his head to the feast that he will again enjoy, that he knows he will have when he is in sweet fellowship with God again. He isn't there yet, but he will not faint any longer than he needs to. He is setting his eyes forward to, to hunger. He's setting his eyes forward in the hunger that the feast will come quickly. And what feast it will be. Imagine the physical hunger that David was experiencing when he wrote this psalm. He's in the middle, as I said before, of this dry, barren wasteland uh, where there is nothing to eat or drink. He's starving. He's ravenous. His body is probably aching in ways that he didn't even know was possible for just the slightest bit of food. Anything would do, any kind of food. It doesn't have to be good. But what does he say? God is so delightful to him that he is, that he, as in God, is more satisfying than fat and rich food. The most amazing meal that a starving man could think of is nothing compared to the delight David knows he will experience when he is with God. Think of your greatest craving. Think of the greatest lust of your heart. Maybe it's sex. Maybe it's glory. Maybe it's some power of some kind. It can be an idol manifesting itself in a whole lot of different ways. But what would please you? What would make you happy? What is that one urge that you are tempted to think, yes, if I just had that, I would be happy and satisfied? David is assuring us it is nothing compared to God. Think back to what I said about value earlier. All things not only derive their value from God, but they all derive their pleasure from him as well. So any pleasure that you have is just a foretaste of what you will experience in him. So what would you prefer? Would you rather have the sun or just a few fleeting rays of light from it? Delight yourself in God. Feast on him. Our lusts tell us to reject him, but only he will truly satisfy. They are what we must reject, not him. But let's look back at the psalm. Look at verses five through eight with me. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. How often, when others are struggling, do we offer them empty words or condolences in an attempt to please them when we could instead offer them God, offer them Christ? Pay attention to the context that David reveals to us in verse six. It is during the watches of the night. That means he can't sleep. Though he's almost certainly tired, he's worn out, I'm sure he's exhausted, he wants to sleep, Um, but he can't. So many things weigh down his soul. And that makes sense given what is taking place around him right now. All that has been taken from him. He doesn't know whether he's going to live or die. Um, The fear of that is probably running through his head constantly. Think about everything that he's going through. He is anxious and desperately grieving and sleep offers him no rest. 
But what does he do? He turns to God in those sleepless nights. He knows God will satisfy him. He knows God will grant him joy even to his weary and downtrodden soul. When we seek him, God quickens and enlivens our hearts by his spirit. When you and others are struggling, don't settle for weak platitudes or forms of escapism. Feast on God and help others to do so too. As you feast on God, delight in him more than your own more in your own life, and you will naturally want to help others do that also. Chances are, think about this, chances are if you aren't helping others to enjoy him now in your own life, it's probably because you yourself are not enjoying him. So seek enjoyment in God. Seek him as your delight. But it's really easy to talk about that in these general theoretical terms without getting practical, What does that mean in practice? What does it mean to practically feast on God, to delight in him? There were just three quick reflections that I wanted to point out on ways that we can do that ourselves or to help others to do so. So the first, this is kind of being large picture and then kind of zooms in. So the first one is recalling what he has done in creation. Think about it. If you are fainting for God, if you are not enjoying him, just go outside, spend some time in nature, go for a walk. Not only is it good for your health, which can help stir your heart towards God, but marvel at what he has done and who he is. Look at the diversity and beauty of his creation and know that he is even more infinitely great than that. So spend some time in his creation recalling what he has done. Second, recall what he has done in the church. He has done and is doing incredible things in the lives of those around you. Let them share those things with you. Ask someone, what is God teaching you? How has he impacted your heart lately? How is he moving and working? Be encouraged to see how God is caring for his sheep, how he's caring for his flock. And then thirdly, recall what he has done in your own life and what he promises to continue to do. Uh, John Flavel, the author, um, he was a Puritan. He, He wrote the book, The Mystery of Providence. And a good portion of that book is devoted to helping people just reflect on God's good providence in our lives. And some of the things that he draws out are, are just really, really cool. If you haven't read the book, I'd encourage you to do so. It's, it's kind of a hard read, but it, it's, very, it's definitely worth it. But he points out, like, if we want to delight in God more, reflect on his providence in your own life. Reflect on your birth and your upbringing. The fact that you lived through childhood and into adulthood, that, that you were born into a a land and into a family and into a people where you can hear of Jesus Christ, that you aren't born into a part of the world where the gospel has not reached yet, that you were brought up in such a way that you could learn about him in some ways. That's not to say that you didn't face horrible experiences, but your upbringing and if you're a Christian, your conversion and the family that you have, even the fact that you have a job to provide for yourself and your family All of those things are worthy of praise and thanksgiving to God. All those things are reason to reflect on his love for you. 
um, and compel you towards delight in him. We have a God of tremendous love who offers us infinite delight in our relationship with him. So let's help one another experience that. And, to no, and notice one more thing in this stanza. As verse seven says, David's joy comes from being in the shadow of God's wings. One of our greatest temptations in this life is to rest on our own supposed strengths and abilities. Perhaps that isn't as big a temptation for you when you're struggling, but it's certainly a tremendous temptation and a subtle one when things are going well in our lives. We can delight in our accomplishments, in our accomplishments as though we achieve them ourselves. That is self-glorification though, and it will not satisfy you. That is the number one way, I would argue, to ruin your appetite for God. It is in a posture of humility and neediness that true satisfaction and delight in him is found. It is in the shadow of God's wings where David is singing for joy, not as he's standing on his own two feet. He's not resting in his own strength and his own accomplishments. He's resting on God. It's hard to believe at times, but true joy is found in dependence upon God, not in our self-reliance. So turn to him for delight, not yourself. And that leads us into our final point. Uh, David shows us that not only is God his desire and delight, but that he is also his defense and he can be ours as well. So look with me at verses nine through 11. He says this, but those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt for the mouths of liars will be stopped. David is confident that God will vindicate him, not because David desires retribution, but because God will vindicate his own name. David knows that God anointed him as king. Therefore, to be hostile to David is to be hostile towards the will of God himself. Absalom is defying and rebelling against God by usurping his father. In fact, I suspect that David wrote these words with a rather heavy heart. He knew what was coming, even as it grieved him. He knew Absalom would be overcome but he still loved his son. He still cared for him. In fact, we know from 2 Samuel 18 that he was almost inconsolable after Absalom was killed. David knew the fate of all those who opposed God and his people. David knew God and would, knew God would defend him. That is why in verse 11, the king David rejoices and why all those who swear by him, which is the him is God, will exalt But even in rejoicing though, this is where we must acknowledge the seriousness of our own sin. Only wrath and death await those who rebel against God. As the author of the book of Hebrews says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But that does not need to be our fate. That is the incredible good news that we have in Jesus Christ. Through him, God offers us defense. Through Jesus, we are offered peace and reconciliation instead of punishment and rejection. And that defense comes so that we can also desire God and delight in him. 
though he didn't know it at the time, David is pointing us to the hope that we have in Christ. And I think that is exactly what Paul was reflecting on, actually, when he wrote his letter to the Romans in chapter three. So let me reread verse 11 for you guys really quick. He says, but the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt. And then this last part is the part that I want you to focus on. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. So notice that phrase, the mouths of liars will be stopped. Now remember that. We're going now to look at Romans 3, verses 19 through 25. In the verses, we, just before our passage, so just before Romans 3, verse 19, Paul is quoting Psalm 14. And he's doing that because he's trying to communicate that we're all deceivers, we're all evil, we all say and do horrible things against God. In other words, Paul is saying that we are all liars. And this is where I think his thoughts actually did go back to Psalm 63. Think about it. Paul knew all of the Psalms. He, he most likely had every single one of them memorized. He would have known how Psalm 63 was phrased, how it concluded. The mouths of liars will be stopped. And what does he start off Romans 3.19 by saying after he's talking about how we're all liars, how we're all deceivers? He says in verse 19 in Romans 3, he says this, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable by God. Paul uses the exact same kind of phrasing as we saw in, in Psalm 63. And I see him drawing a connection here. You might ask, what is that connection? And I think he's expanding on what David was saying. He's taking David's words and giving them a far deeper and more significant meaning. When David was speaking of liars in Psalm 63, he was referring to Absalom and all those who followed him in the rebellion. Paul is taking David's prophecy and saying that it will be fulfilled in another, even more comprehensive way. Yes, David's enemies, the liars, were stopped, the rebellion was defeated and David's throne was reestablished. Absalom ended up dead. But Paul is telling us that there is another whole layer of meaning to David's prophecy. We are all the liars whose mouths will be stopped. The law of God has found us all failing. We are all guilty of disobedience and sin. Every mouth is accountable to God. And yet as Paul continues, the story doesn't end there. Thanks be to God for that. Read with me. If you haven't already turned there, look at with me again at Romans 3. We're gonna, I'm going to read 19 through 25, the first part of 25. Paul says this. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And I would say one of those prophets was David. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction 
for all who for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Yes, all are accountable to God, but for those who have faith and trust in Christ, we are justified. We are made righteous and our guilt is taken from us. Christ is our defense against the very law of God that condemns us because we know it and we disobey it. David did not understand fully when he wrote Psalm 63 verse 11 that he, even he and every other person ever to live save Jesus Christ would be included in the group that God would overcome and subdue. He would judge all mankind. We are all liars whose mouths would be stopped, yet redemption and righteousness are offered to all through Jesus Christ because of his sacrifice on the cross. I'll say it again, he is our defense. He is our mediator. He is our protector and justifier. The hope and trust that David had in God's covenant of love for him was fulfilled and confirmed when Christ became the true Israel and upheld the nation's side of the covenant, the side that they miserably failed to keep. If you haven't read through the Old Testament, I encourage you to do so. God made a covenant with the nation and they continuously turned away from him and broke that covenant. But but Christ was the true Israel who upheld it. And we, through being united with him, are included in that covenantal love. And that is through faith in Christ. And, that's, and that includes all people, not just Jews, but all people, Gentiles included, may be part of that covenant. If that is you today, if you have placed your faith in Christ and you are part of that covenant family, rejoice in the defense you have in Christ. No sin is held against you because he took that upon himself. If you have not entrusted yourself to Christ yet though, I beg you to do so this morning. Do not go another day separated from the love and protection of Jesus Christ. You cannot save yourself acknowledge your sins, be grieved by them, repent from them, turn from them, and pray that Christ would be your saving sacrifice and that his sacrifice would be counted for you. And then rejoice in the freedom and protection you have in him. He is your surest and greatest defense. No one and nothing else can save you from the sins that you have committed. Now with that, we have seen how David saw God as his supreme desire, delight, and defense. And we see how we as Christians who have seen Christ and what he has done, we have an even fuller picture of that than even David had. Let's return to my original question. Would you be happy if you spent eternity with all of your wishes come true, but you were without God? As Christians, we must confidently say no, even though we recognize that we are daily tempted to say yes. Even as as I was working on the sermon, I was reflecting on this constantly all week long, and yet I was still tempted every day to be satisfied with something else. But that doesn't mean that's where our heart stays. We reject those temptations. We flee from them, 
and put our satisfaction in God. We are constantly tempted to be satisfied with lesser things. They will not satisfy us though. Only God, only Christ is desirous enough. Only he is delightful enough. Only he is secure enough as our defense to be our supreme satisfaction. Because of who our Lord is, no one and nothing else is enough. And because of who he is, nothing else is needed for us. We have all we could possibly hope for if we have him. Faint for him when he seems far and feast on him when he is near. Ultimately, seek God and be satisfied, as I said in the beginning, because his love truly is better than life. Bow your heads with me in prayer.